soon as Roger finds his seat, we'll, uh, we'll start. Be turning in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, which is where we're going to spend uh, the whole of our time together today. Some very curious things said in chapter 12, and I want to dovetail off of what we were talking about last week with regard to the gods of Egypt, all the animal gods that they had. You'll notice in verse 12, uh, verse 12, verse 12 of chapter 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. Now, how is God going to accomplish executing judgment on all the gods of Egypt? Because we know all the gods of Egypt were not real. They're not real gods. They're a, they're a panoply of gods that were represented by animals in most cases. We saw last week the animals that, that most of them recommended, uh, represented. Heka, the god of frogs. Hathor, uh, the bull god. And so if you, if you go back and you look, at, you look at some of the historical literature about this time, there were four great cities in Egypt. There was Memphis, Heliopolis, Hermathus, and, and uh, what's called Mo-Memphis. It's on the western delta. So at these four locations, there were animals that were maintained there, which were viewed as actual incarnations of the gods. So we had a, you had a bull that would actually be a represented, be representative of Hathor. And then you would have, at certain locations, you would have maybe a, a frog, or uh, you'd have the Apis bull at Memphis. You'd have another bull at Nevis, at Heliopolis. And you'd have, uh, at Mo Memphis, you would have a white cow. So when God says that he's going to visit that among all them, what is it going to do to the people when they see the firstborn of those animals, or if that animal is a firstborn, that animal dies? That's going, to strike at the, that's going to strike at the very heart of their religion. Because here's an animal, and God passes over and kills all of the firstborn. And so not only is he executing judgment against Egypt, he's even executing judgment against the gods of Egypt. And so as these gods are represented by the animals, the animals themselves, if they're the firstborn, the animals themselves are going to die. And so, you know... These animals, these sacred animals, emblematic of certain deities, uh, you know, would be represented, and, and they would, if they had opened the womb, uh, death would have fallen upon them. So the judgment uh, would have been executed uh, literally upon these upon these Egyptian gods. And I just, I kind of wanted to bring that out because sometimes people have trouble with, you know, how is God going to execute judgment on the gods of Egypt? Well, He executes His judgment against their representatives, just like He executes. And I'm really not going to say a lot more about. Uh, the the death of the firstborn. I think that's I think we've seen that we've read about that we've seen it in movies. Uh, you know we kind of know that story. So the setup for chapter 12 is really in chapter 6, where God says I'm going to lead them out with a strong hand, and I'm going to do all of these things, and I'm going to I'm going to establish my covenant with them. And so we're going to talk mostly today about the covenant, and then I want to really take the covenant and pivot off of that and talk about what that means to the New Testament Christian. What's, what's, the, what's the effect for us? Because we, we can all read about history, and some of us love history, and some of it's, a, it's oh, I hate history, and I don't want to really read any more about history, and I don't care. Uh, but there are others who love history, but for the Christian, I think this stuff is, I think this stuff is very important. So um, 
Chapter 6 is a setup. Chapter, chapter 12 now is the reality. It's come to pass. So we're going, God is going to establish a covenant with the house of Israel. Notice, first of all, that this covenant now is not with a man. So the covenant initially, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of these people had covenants that were established with them for this people that he was going to, uh, that he was going to have as his people. And now it's changed. It's no longer an individual covenant now, but it's a covenant with the people. It's a covenant with, with the people. And that's us today, correct? We're, we have a covenant relationship with God. What's our covenant? What's a, first of all, what's a covenant? Define a covenant for me. Okay, it's a contract. I like that. Okay, some other words, some other adjectives that you might use for a covenant. Okay, is the agreement just kind of loosey-goosey or is it a formal so a formal agreement, a formal contract, a binding formal contract, which means the person executing the covenant has certain responsibilities and the person who is getting the covenant also has certain responsibilities, right? So it's binding on both parties. It's two people or, or a nation and a God. So it's a covenant between the two. God says, you do this and I'll bless you. He says, you don't do this and I'll curse you. God has always been very clear He's never been. He's never. He's never been. Uh, the word is obsequious. He's never been vague in what he wants to talk about or what he commands. He's always been very clear. The Bible is very black and white. There's no gray in the Bible. Well, if you do this, I might do this to you, or then I might do this to you. Well, no. You do this, I'm going to do this. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. Very clear. Your obedience is based on your submission. To God, and so that is really that's a that's really the kind of contract or the kind of covenant that God is entering to, into with the people with the people of Israel. It's a very special contract, and it really reflects God's nature. Okay, our God is a God of love. He's a God of joy. He's a God that has to be reverenced. We have to experience with God a certain faithfulness to Him. We have to be subject subject to His will. And so as we start talking about this covenant, we read in, in chapter 12 about the covenant and how the covenant is established, the Passover, if you will. Um, the word Passover in the Old Testament is the same word as Passover in the New Testament. And so as you read about what happens with the Christian, Passover is it's the same word. It's, we utilize the same word. So as I was reading this and I began uh, to study for uh, getting prepared for chapter 12, I started doing some reading and I started thinking about nights, nights in the Bible. So let's let's focus on this night, the night of the Passover. As a child, there were certain things that the night before you anticipated, right? What did you anticipate the night before Christmas? Couldn't sleep, stayed up all night, waiting for Santa. But the night before, well, when, when we celebrated birthdays, the night before our birthday, because we might, we might know there's going to be a party tomorrow. So nights are a time of, especially when something's going to happen the next day, they're nights of anticipation. In the Bible, Jesus prayed the night before he appointed the apostles. So it was a, time, it was a solemn time that he would pray to God that he would appoint men to carry out his mission on earth. And one of the things that came to me, it was, it, was kind of, it was kind of different. We know all about Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, right? 
Think about that night. Think about that night for those 3,000 souls. Had their lives changed in ways that they could never anticipate? They They were now members of the church. They were now members of God's church. They were members of God's body. They had obeyed God's will. They had subjected themselves to them. What a night for them that must have been. Think about your own. Think about your own the day you were baptized. How was that night for you? Was it a night of joy? Certainly was not a night of dread. Maybe the night before you were baptized there was a, there was, there was a little dread. But the night following your conversion, the night following your baptism, was certainly a special night. And, and it always seems to signify the night before something happens is a night of anticipation. And so it was while these pre- people prepared for the exodus. Some of these people, most of these people, had had parents, grandparents, who had anticipated this night. They remembered the promise to Abraham. They remembered the time when God said he was going to make of this people a great nation. Number like the stars in the sky, number like the sands of the ocean, or the sands on the beach. And so some people had waited a lifetime, especially the older folks. They had waited a a lifetime to be free. They were slaves, forced to make brick without the benefit of straw, in subjection for 200 plus years. And so the night before, these people who had waited a lifetime, and now the promise of God is drawing near. Slavery is going to end. And for the Christian, we have that like, that same like. They're being free from the slavery of Egypt. What are we freed from the slavery of? Sin and death by obeying Christ. And so many, many of the things that we see in the Passover have direct linkage to the Christian, the Christian today. And I wonder sometimes if even God's view of this, when he looked at this, this was something that he had put in place before the beginning of time, something that he had, something that he had known about, something because he's omniscient. He'd known about this. His people were now going to be free. He was going to make of them a great nation. And for the Christian, God has made us a great nation. We're a great nation of priests, and we represent all the things that are good about God and, and the things that he, that he stands for. But as with anything else, there's always instructions that go along with any contract. You have to do something to get this. You can't do this to get this, these kind of things. So he starts out in the, in the, in the first couple verses of chapter 12 talking about the beginning of the first month. It starts on the 10th day, and it ends on the 14th day. And this was the new beginning. This was the new beginning for these people that now belong to God. They had always had a tacit attachment to God. They had always believed in God, but now he was going to formalize this and make them a great nation. He talks about the goat or the lamb in uh, verse 4. and talks about the fact that they'll put the blood on the lintels of the house or on the framework around the doorways. And they were to stay home, be ready to go as he passed over. And it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the roast lamb, there are things that are done with the the roast lamb from the sacrifice. The lamb is to be without blemish. A male, a year old, taken from the sheep or from the goats. Keep it to the 14th day, verse 6. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs in twilight. Now, we've had several discussions with several people in the class about what twilight means. In the Jewish calendar, what is the first hour of the day? What is midnight for them? Midnight for us is 12. What is midnight for them? 6 a.m. 6 a.m. begins their day. Twilight is any time after noon, but specifically between the hours of 3 and 5. That's on the Jewish calendar. And I have some handouts if there are people who have questions about that. That goes into much greater detail, but just allow me to say that twilight for them would be the hours between 3 and 5 in the afternoon. Between 3 and, because they considered afternoon, they considered that twilight because the sun had reached its apogee and it was now beginning to go down. So that was the time from noon until 6 o'clock was considered twilight. But the specific hours that the Jewish people did this performed this ceremony was sometime between the hours of 3 and 5. When did our Lord die? The ninth hour, which would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay? There's, the, there's, a, there's a touch point. There's a touch point between the Passover lamb and our Savior. What else about the Passover lamb do we know is a, is a connection between that and Jesus? Not a bone was broken. Please, men, when you pray over the Lord's Supper, don't talk about his broken body, unless you're talking about the fact that his skin had been cut, his side had been pierced. Okay, that cuts his body. But the Bible is very clear about the fact that not one bone of his body was broken. The lamb was eaten whole. What happened to any leftovers of the lamb when they ate after they finished the meal? It was to be disposed of. That's a health, that's a sanitation thing because they did not have refrigerators. They couldn't put it in some Tupperware, slide it into the fridge, and come back and get some more the next day. They ate what they could eat, the whole family. Now, this is the whole thing. This is not an individual thing. Eating the lamb is not an individual thing. It is a what? It's a family thing. It's, an, it's not an individual. It's a family. How about the Lord's Supper? Do we take the, we take the Lord's Supper individually? Yes. They ate the lamb individually, yes, but what is the semblance? The semblance for is for Christ dying for the group, right? Just as the lamb died to atone for the sins of the people, Christ died one time, as opposed to the lamb dying each Passover, okay? So there are these touch points that, that come along, all right? Unleavened bread. What's leaven? Or as my English friends say, what is leaven? What is leaven? Those of you who bake bread, what's leaven? Huh? Okay, it's the heat. It's something that, don't you add something to the dough to make it rise? Okay. So in terms of, in terms of leaven, leaven is a corrupter. Leaven takes the dough mass and it changes it into something else. It corrupts the dough. Now, not corrupt in a bad way. It, cor it just changes the dough into something else. It causes it to rise. Now, can you put leaven into bread and eat it immediately? No. What do you have to do? You have to wait. It takes time. So they're eating unleavened bread because that's the bread of haste. What are they, what are they waiting for? To leave out in the morning. They don't have the time for the bread to rise. They have to eat it unleavened. 
And so seven days they would eat unleavened bread. No leaven in the bread. No corruption. No corruption was to enter into the bread that they ate. All right? How about the bitter herbs? What's that symbol? What's, what does that sim, sim, symbolize? Bitter herbs. What do you think? Most scholars believe that the bitter herbs represented their slavery, their, their enslavement. The bitterness of how they were forced to live, how they, how they would live. So each year, on this night, they would remember that God would deliver his people by eating the bread, by eating the herbs, and by partaking of the whole the lamb. And there were even specific, could you eat it? Could you eat the lamb? Could you eat the lamb any way you wanted? Had to be cooked a certain way. Had to be whole. Had to be cooked a certain way. Couldn't boil it. I don't like lamb. I'm not a lamb person. I don't not. Just never have developed a taste for it. Some people love it. Well, why would they do that now? What, what was the purpose of that? Haste. Are you ready to go? You ready to go? We got ready to go to church this morning. I hadn't put my billfold or my keys in my pocket. Christy's ready to walk out the door, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not done. I wasn't ready. Sandals on your feet. Make haste to leave. Be ready. Nothing left behind. I think that's, I think that's right on the money. I think that's spot on. So by doing all this, by eating this a certain way, by being ready, your feet... What does the Bible say about us and our, our feet? They should be shod for the preparation of the gospel. So we're like them. Our feet should be on our, sho- our shoes should be on our feet, ready, ready to go out and spread the gospel, right? Same thing as them. Haste. We've got to get the, we've got to get the word out before it's an eternally too late for these people that are not part of the body. Okay? This, all of these things made them his people. I guess the one thing that I think about when I think about the night is I think about the night in the garden and the preparation that he made prior to going to the garden by instituting what? The Lord's Supper. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place with me. And so the analogies to the Passover are not coincidental. And they have a lot of meaning for Christians, as well as they had meaning for these people. So what do we see from all this? What do we see from all this preparation? What do we see from all of this that we're talking about? I, I've, I've, I've teased out kind of three or four things. And first, the first thing is, God had a plan. He had a plan for them, and he has a plan for us. Yeah, he did. I mean, he was the he was the one making the covenant, and these people, because he says in here, he he says very clearly in here, you can you can not do this, and what will happen if you don't do this? It was very clear. What will happen if you don't do this? It's right there in chapter twelve. You'll be cut off. You'll be cut off. So you do it, you're part of my people. You don't do it, you'll be cut off. What does Jesus say? You do what I you you. You follow this simple plan of salvation, and you're mine. You're part, of, you're part of me. You're part of my church. You don't do these things, you'll be cut off. Plain and simple. So God has a plan. He had a plan with Abraham. He had a plan with Isaac. He had a plan with Jacob. And now he has a plan with Moses. And with Moses, he has a plan with the people. 
Psalm 105, Acts 7, Hebrews 11, all talk about this plan that God had. Did the people know everything about what was going to happen to them in the future? Did they have any idea what was going to happen? Did they have any idea of the things that they were going to see in the next few weeks and months? Not a clue. How about you? God has a plan for you. Do you know what that plan is? No. You haven't got a clue. What's going to happen to you as you walk outside these doors today and get in your car? You may not make it home. I have to, I have, to have a surgical procedure tomorrow. Okay. It's pretty routine for a man my age. But I might not make it through. I don't know. But I have to have my sandals on and I have to be ready. I have to be ready. That's the main thing is being ready. If you're not ready, you're going to get left behind. It's all about preparedness and God has a plan. If you know the plan, God knows the plan. God knows everything that you're going to do in your life. He knows every decision that you're going to make. And we, we grasp, we grasp at trying to understand what, what our future holds. And it's the same with these people. It's the same with the children of Israel. They were grasping to understand what was going to happen to them. And that, that extends to us today. God's eternal plan for us. We don't know everything about that. That's right. Cast all your cares on me because today has enough trouble for itself. But we know that if we are a part of him, that we are blessed beyond measure. And we don't have anything to worry about. We don't worry about tomorrow. I'm not concerned about what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't care. I'm prepared. I've done everything that the doctors have told me to do to prepare it. I'm ready. Whatever happens, happens. It's God's will. Secondly, God made a promise. Not only did he have a plan, but he had a promise. He had a promise for the people, for the children of Israel. Again, thinking back about that night before your birthday, the night before Christmas, the promise of, the promise of what's coming tomorrow. You don't know. You have, don't have all the facts, but you know, well, I shook that box, and I sure think it's something that I wanted. Abraham was told, but he didn't see everything. Isaac and Jacob were told. They trusted God, and God took care of them. We look at Jacob. The trickster, the supplanter, same promise from God applied to him. But no longer was he the supplanter, no no longer was he the trickster. Now he was a man of faith because he believed the promises of God. Joseph, his son, knew enough about God and knew enough about the promise for the people that he said, you take my bones and when you're freed from this, because I know this is going to happen, when, when, I, when you are freed from this ex, when you're freed from this slavery, and you take your exodus out of Egypt, you take my bones with you, and you carry my bones to the promised land, because he believed in God's promise. He believed in God's promise. Same promises for us. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? Lo, I am with you, always, always. He'll never leave you, never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. We have earthly relationships and sometimes we make promises and we can't keep them. But God's promises are immutable. Not subject to variation. Promise is a promise from God. 
I will never leave you or forsake you, but you may leave me. When you take your eyes off the cross, you put yourself in jeopardy. You keep your eyes on the cross, remember whose you are, you'll never have a problem. And so someday we can claim that God's promise. We claim that promise from God every single day. We claim that promise. Now and in eternity, we claim that promise that he's with us and he'll be with us. So the third thing that I got from this, not only did God have a plan and God had a promise, but blessings and mercy of God fall from following his instructions. And it's only available to those who Submit to his plan. There are some that believe some strange things today in, in, denomination, in the denominational world. Some believe you can get there by grace only. Some even believe you can get there by faith only. You say the sinner's prayer. You've seen it on television. You, see this, you say the sinner's prayer. God will forgive all your sins. That's a lie. Why would, they, why would these people lie to you? That's not God's promise. That's not, God, that's not how to get God's blessing. It's not how to get God's mercy. But the blessings and mercy of God fall from following his instructions. So the children of Israel. Well, I don't, I don't have a goat. I don't have a lamb. Uh, maybe I'll sacrifice this pigeon. Or maybe I'll sacrifice a bull. How about that? Blood? I don't... Paint it on the lintel of the house. Well, how about I just put it on the? How about I just put it on the, the floor of the, the thing on the doorstep there? That that's good enough, right? That's good enough. I'm gonna leave that leaven in. I really like to taste that bread when it's got that leaven in. So I'm just gonna leave that leaven in. Bitter herbs, not so much. Not much on that bitter stuff. I've already got a I've already got a bowl here set up to sacrifice. How about I put up some potatoes and some onions in there and make me a nice pot roast? That'll be all right with God, won't it? Sandals. I really prefer to walk around barefoot. My sandals are somewhere. I don't know where they are. Eh, That's not important. That's not necessary. Can't follow God's instructions. You have no place with him. Make haste. Make haste. Have everything ready. I'm just not someone who likes to hurry. I just really like to take my time and think these things through and troubleshoot all the possible variables and everything. And there you stand, barefooted, belly full of bull, not ready to go. Got to follow his instructions. They had to follow his instructions, and you're no different. You're no different. We submit to the will of God. And that night, they waited for God, just as their parents and their grandparents and maybe even their great-grandparents had waited for this deliverance because they wanted to do it exactly the way God said to do it because that was the way they knew for the Christian today or for the non-Christian today. Faith only. They'll tell you, faith only. just have to have faith. Saved by grace. That's a cheap grace. Well, you can, you can confess your sins and you can repent, but baptism, that's kind of optional, really. You, don't, you, know, you really don't have to do that. That's optional. Don't follow the plan. Don't get to be free. Simple as that. 
It's not really that hard. They followed the instructions. They submitted to God, and they were freed from the slavery. We follow the plan. We submit to God, and we're free, free from sin and death through the sacrifice of the one. The blessings are for us. The mercy is for us. And that foreshadowing in the Passover is the foreshadowing in Christ that we have in mind, that we have as our example today. Would it surprise you if I told you that on that night of the Passover that God was thinking ahead 2,000 plus years and he was thinking about you? He was thinking about me. His plan was in place. His people were in place, ready to go. But he was thinking about you and me. And all this foreshadowing in Christ had us in mind. Chapter 12, verses 13, 23, and 27, he uses the word Passover. It's the same Passover that's used in the New Testament. It's the same word. For them as for well for them as well as for us, what is what is the means of redemption? What is the means of redemption? What has to be shed? Blood has to be shed. Blood of lamb, dumb animal, has no idea why it's being sacrificed. Atonement each time that lamb was sacrificed, just if you will use the Political parlance, we just kicked the can down the road. Didn't really, it was not really true atonement. It was temporary until the blood of one was shed for all. That was permanent. It was fixed. It was for all. And it was done once. So in Exodus, we see the blood as the means of redemption. In Christ, we see his blood as the means of redemption. It is the path. It is the redeeming, it is the redeeming quantity or the redeeming quality. Blood is the means by which we are saved, not only in the Exodus, but also in Christ. Look at Galatians 3.29. Write this one down in your in your notes there alongside chapter 12. Galatians 3.29 says, if you are Christ's, if you are in Christ, or you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring and heir to the promise. Mic drop. That's all that needs to be said. If you're in Christ, you read about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you read about Moses, you read about the Exodus, you're heir. You're heir to that promise. If you're not, you're left behind in slavery. Unprepared. You can eat whatever you want because you're not going to be saved. I was going to recommend a book, and I'll throw it out there if you want to read it. It's a book that was recommended to me uh, by a, one of the old-time preachers who's no longer with us now. It's a book by Jesse Stewart, and it's called The Thread That Runs So True. It's about... One man and his history as an educator and the things that he ran into. And it very much parallels what we're talking about today. It's a good read. It's not a long book, but it's a good read. The Thread 
that runs so true. The Passover has always been intimately tied to the Exodus. The Passover was the preparation. The Exodus was the result. The Passover was a judgment. It was a judgment on the firstborn, right? Israel, the Hebrew nation, they were God's firstborn. They were his child. He was their father. Pharaoh enslaved his firstborn and would not let them go. God smote Egypt's firstborn in order to obtain the release of his firstborn. It's very important that you separate the death of the firstborn from all of the other plagues. Yes, I know it's the tenth and final plague, but there are really nine plagues which are admonitory. They admonish. They admonish the people. Let my people go. The final plague was a judgment. It was a judgment on the nation. It was a judgment on Pharaoh. Let my people go. Salvation, as we said, is through the blood. Redemption is through the blood. Redemption by power, emergence of a people from slavery. Does the analog to being a Christian make, is it any, can it be any more obvious? Can it be any more obvious? We're saved by his blood. We're redeemed by his power. And we emerge as a people from slavery. Yes, ma'am. Well, God promised that anyone who followed this, so if you were an Egyptian family who believed in that sort of thing and you prepared, I, I wouldn't see any reason why God would not pass over you. You didn't have to be, you didn't have to be baptized to do it this, this at that time. All you had to do was follow those instructions. No, he didn't. He didn't look in. He, did, he looked, and if he saw the he saw the blood on the lentils, he passed over. I would not see any reason if there was an Egyptian family who had been part and parcel of maybe being in the land of Goshen for whatever reason had come to believe they were proselytes. They would be proselytes. That if they didn't follow the instructions, they would they would not obtain the same they would obtain the same salvation. Now I don't think that meant they could stay in Egypt. They would probably have to leave with the people. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know the inner mechanics of how that would work, but they would have to be circumcised at some point you know, because he's going to institute circumcision as a, as a, uh, a vouchsafe for the people. Um, so that sort of thing would happen. But in this time, if you followed the prescribed uh, methods that he, that he lays out in Chapter 12, then I, I don't see anybody have a contrary, anybody have a contrary opinion or think differently? Well, and if you remember in the if you remember in the, the movie, the Ten Commandments, uh, Na- it wasn't Naaman. Uh, who was it? It was uh, uh, it was Edward G. Robinson, Jr. The girl that was his slave was was Hebrew, and she painted his doorway. And he came out and said, "Why is this Why is this blood all over my doorway?" He didn't He didn't do that. If he hadn't made preparation, all the blood in the world on the door on the door lintel would, wouldn't wouldn't save him. Yes, sir. Mm hmm. Sure. Well, there you go. I don't know. Let me go to my notes and see what it says. 43. This is the law in respect to the persons who can, part- who are to partake of it. There shall be no stranger. Well, well, no son of a stranger shall eat of it. By a stranger here, the commentary says, it is meant a foreign race who wishes to retain his foreign character and to remain uncircumcised. 
So you can't have it both ways. Okay, so I still think to that point, if you've made all the preparation, doesn't say anything about, there, about, about having to be circumcised right now. That's going to come later. But I think, if you made, I think if you made the proper preparation, a foreigner is someone who is going to say, okay, well, I'll make all the preparation, but I'm not going to eat the lamb, or I'm not going to be ready. I'm not going to do something. I'm not going to fulfill the, the, this part of the covenant. So with a covenant, when you make an agreement with someone, is there any, is there any if you violate one part of that, what happens? It's null and void, right? And this is a man who knows. He writes a lot of covenants. It's a lot of contracts. So I have to be bab- so I have to be baptized? Oh man. I thought you could I thought you could get into heaven without having to be baptized. No, that's not what the covenant says. That's not what the contract says. So didn't Jesus say something about that? He said, you know, you're followers of the law, but if you violate one thing in the law, what has happened? You violated the whole law. So it's the same thing. And I think to your point as well as, as his point, I think if you're, you're not a foreigner, you're not considered a foreigner unless you, unless you, uh, you know, remain, you want to retain your foreign character. Well, I want to be, what's the analog for us? I want to be a Christian. I really want to be a Christian, but I still really like to go to the strip clubs. I want to be a Christian, but I still want to drink. Or I want to, you know, spark a doobie every once in a while. But I want to be a Christian. Okay? I still I want to be a Christian, but I still want to live in sin. Okay? I, I, I want I, I want the whole enchilada. I don't want just I just I don't there's parts of it I just I can't get up. I, I just can't get next to. I'm sorry, I can't do that. Well, no, it's all or nothing. It's black and white. You either you're in or you're out. You can't have, you know, can't be you can't be dancing back and forth. So yeah. So what does the Passover teach us? In the last few minutes that we've got, the Passover teaches us that blood is necessary. Without shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. It signified the solidarity of the nation. I, I don't know how much more forcefully I can say that. It's not an act of individuals. It's an act of a people. It's an act of a household in a wider sense, not only a family, but it's a nation as a whole. As Christians, we feel that unity with Christ. We feel that unity. In guilt, each was involved in guilt and doomed not only through their own sins, but the sins of the nation, which had come about through the years, Isaiah 6-5. Redemption, beautifully symbolized in that eating of the lamb. Roasted in its entirety, placed on the table undivided, 12, Exodus 12-9. Avoided the bre- by avoiding the breaking of the bones, Exodus 12:46, the animal was res- preserved in its complete integrity, undistri- undisturbed and entire, Psalm 34:20. All who ate of it should look upon themselves as the whole one community. How do we see that as Christians today? We take the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 5 and 7. We being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers. We're all partakers. So the communion that we'll observe this morning is an individual act for you, but it's an act of unity for the whole church. It's an act of unity. It signifies we are a people. We are unified as one people. Christians. And yes, it does. It points 
to atonement at a future date. It points to atonement down the road. The blood of the lamb had no real virtue. There's, there was nothing in the blood of that lamb. It was necessary each year to shed that blood for the atonement of the people, but it would not adequately provide atonement. The life of a beast is no proper substitution for the life of a firstborn son. The life of a lamb or any beast is no proper substitute for the life of the firstborn. The Passover, therefore, by its very nature, points to Christ, in whom all types of sacrifices find complete fulfillment. Yes, there were symbolic rituals that were associated with this. The unleavened bread, indicative of haste. The bitter herbs, the affliction of Egypt. And as we view the, as we view the Passover as an ordinance for us today, we see the Lord's Supper, an institution which in its very nature has been set up for us to participate in each week. Not each year, but each week. And there are even those who would say that you only have to partake of the Lord's Supper once a month or once a year. And again, they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. It's a perpetuation. The Lord's Supper is a perpetuation in our remembrance of the original sacrifice of God. The original sacrifice by God with his son. The lambs were year by year presented to God, but this marked that a true sacrifice had not yet been offered, Hebrews 10, verses 1 and 3. And now that Christ has died and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26, and Hebrews 10, 12, there's no need. There's no need for further sacrifice. The Lord's Supper, then, is a commemorative ordinance that has found its place in true scripture. There were oral instructions that were provided also to the people as they are for us. A further guarantee of the handing down, the faithful passing from generation to generation. You tell your children about the Passover. You tell your children about what it means to be a Christian. You teach them and you pass that you pass that along. It was connected with oral instruction. Look at verse 26 and 27 of chapter 12. A further guarantee of the handing down of the faithful ungarbled tradition the meaning of the Passover ceremony as it is for us today. Now there's more about the Feast of Unleavened Bread if you want to read about that. That's in Deuteronomy 16, verses 14 through 21. And I'm not going to spend any time on that. But it's a memorial of the haste, again, with which they were ready to leave Egypt. And so we see the fulfillment, the foreshadowing of Christ in all of this. We see that our Savior was that one true lamb that was sacrificed, but he only had to do it once for the salvation of all, back through, back through the annals of time. His salvation, was, his salvation reaches back through the years as much as it reaches forward to the, to the future. Questions or comments? Well, next week it's going to get real exciting, good Lord willing. It's going to get real exciting. We're going to cross the Red Sea. And we're going to end up where in a week or so we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. I hope you'll be here. Thank you.